And then uh, you, if you have your Bible, uh, you want to uh, have it handy as well if you access the scriptures on your phone. Uh, but I want to give you a warning this morning. We are going to walk through a lot of scripture, and the scripture will be on the screen. Another really easy way to follow along is using the Bible app, which we utilize the live function that has all the points and the scriptures. In fact, you can even know what I'm going to say before I even say it. Uh, because it's actually on there. So a number of you use that, and that way you capture all the scriptures that we're going to go through. But this morning, we're, we're in the second, second uh, week of a series that we started last week called Inoculated. And the whole concept of inoculation, and be reminded of, of what we talked about last week, is it's when you get enough of, of a disease or some kind of illness uh, that makes you a little bit sick, but your body reacts and creates resistance, but it's not enough to kill you. It's just enough to make you react so that the next time you encounter that disease or that illness, your body fights it off and resists it. Now, when you apply that to the reality of what the gospel is, whether we know it or not, we sometimes do that with this thing called the gospel, which is actually supposed to transform us, it's supposed to change us, it's supposed to change everything about us, but we get a little bit of it, not enough to what it's supposed to do, which is actually supposed to kill us, meaning killing off our sin nature and our flesh so that we can be who God's created us to be. But we get enough of it where we feel like we're okay, we're saved, but not enough to actually kill us and transform us. And then we miss out on what God has for us. So when we talk about the gospel this morning, when I mentioned this last week, in its simplest form, this is what the gospel is. Sometimes we reduce it to its probably most significant moments, which is Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, which are obviously very pivotal moments for us where Jesus takes our sin on the cross and pays for it so that we can have forgiveness and then experience the life he has for us. But the gospel didn't start when Jesus stepped onto the planet. The gospel started at the beginning of time. It was God's plan from the beginning as he created humanity, knowing that we would find our way into sin and brokenness and failure, that there had to be a way for him to come along and reconnect us with him because we lost that connection with him. And so throughout all of human history, including today, God is constantly in the process of reconnecting everything back to him through what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection. So that means the gospel is much bigger sometimes than we imagine, and it, it has to do with everything about how it changes and transforms our lives. So that's why it's so significant that we need to be aware of that there's a potential that we don't fully embrace the gospel, but just enough to where we feel comfortable with it, but not enough that it's actually going to do anything in our lives. I used the analogy last week. I steal this from Tim, Tim Keller, who's a great author and, and, and pastor. And he said, the gospel is like a coin that you put into a vending machine. And if, unless that coin drops into the machine, it doesn't do anything. It just sits there. And the same thing is true of the Gospels. The Gospel can enter into us. We can embrace what Je who Jesus is. But unless the Gospel drops and hits our souls, it won't do what it's supposed to do, which is transform us and change us. And so a lot of us, we, we live our lives thinking that we've got it, but really it's like the coin that's kind of stuck, and it's waiting to drop. It's waiting to penetrate and to hit where it's supposed to hit. And so last week we talked about how there's never anything that's deficient with the Gospel in its ability to change us and transform us. But the challenge is, is last week we talked about our hearts and our, our receptivity to the gospel penetrating our soul. And we talked about the different soil that Jesus mentions in Matthew chapter 13. Now this week we're going to shift and we're going to talk about what happens when we buy into kind of this inoculated reality where we have enough of the gospel to save us but not enough for us to really be transformed is that we start to shape and change and adjust and modify and customize the kind of gospel that we want to believe. And it always is different than what the gospel is presented in the scriptures and what Jesus has for us because it isn't authored by him, it's authored by us. 
And it becomes a version or it becomes a blurred image of what the gospel looks like. And because of that, it ends up becoming less than what the gospel is supposed to be in our lives. And so we actually shortchange ourselves because we've adopted something that's less than what God has for us. So take a look at this picture. It's similar like the fact that if you're like me, I reached a certain age a few years, a few years ago, which I hated, which I have to admit, I have to wear glasses all the time, which I cannot stand. I used to only wear glasses when I was up here preaching so I could read, but now like people get blurry at a distance. And anybody relate to me? Okay, you don't have to be my age. You just get it. So the hard thing is when you don't have glasses, you think you see everything. And you realize you don't see that much until you put glasses on. It's like this picture. You see, the, you see the colors and you see maybe the images of something that you think is there, but you don't know what it really is until you, have a, a, you look through a lens that gives clarity. The gospel is the clearest lens for life, but what happens is when we refuse to put it on and embrace it fully, then what we think we see, we don't really see. We're seeing distorted, blurred images about what God is wanting to do in our lives. And so this morning, what I want to do is take some time and I want to kind of give you a qualifier on this one, please. And I mentioned this last week, and this is extremely important for this series and then the series that we'll go through, uh, continue on through in the about the gospel in the next series that we go into. Please hear me with what I'm going to say this morning, what I said last week and in the weeks ahead, ahead. Please do not allow yourself to be offended by me, okay? I am not trying to offend anybody. But what I believe is true is that when we start to confront some of the things, that's why we're going to go through a ton of scripture today. It's like a fire hose of scripture. That when we're confronted with things that make us uncomfortable or maybe even we disagree with and there's a resistance, I want you to understand you're not resisting me. If you make it about me, you've missed the point. What I want us to do is walk away and if there's something that challenges you, you're going to go right back to the Bible and to the words of Jesus and to ask the question, Jesus, what do you want me to know? Because it really isn't an offense with me. And sometimes people walk away, oh, Pastor John said this. And, well, what did Jesus say? Not what Pastor John said. Because when you stand before Jesus someday, he's not going to ask, what, pa what did Pastor John say? He's not going to care what Pastor John said. He's going to want to know, what did you do with what I said to you? And so this morning, we're, what we're going to do is we're going to take some time and we're going to look at what I would call versions of the gospel lenses that we look at the gospel through and the way that we shape it around what we want. And, and as we go through these today, there's, there's four of them that I'd like, I'd like to highlight today is that understand each one of these, you may find a bit of truth for you on one or two of them. Maybe all four of them hit you where you're at. But, but I want us to, to really think and reflect, is that the version of the gospel that I've embraced? And maybe there's something bigger and grander that God wants me to embrace as far as the gospel goes. So, so four of these things that we're going to walk through. Again, we're going to walk through a lot of scripture, but they will be up on the screen for you to follow along. So the first version of the gospel that we buy into is what I would call the political gospel. So that gospel says something like this, believes that God is a liberal or God is a conservative or the Republican Party is the Christian Party. If Jesus was walking the earth today, of course he would be a Democrat, right? Everybody has their ideas of what, what Jesus would be if he was here today. And I've heard it time and time again. That's why I look at this, look at this, the, the screen. This, that's why we have t-shirts and slogans like this. Of course, we all know that Jesus was a Republican, right? Of course, right? Or the other side of the coin is Jesus didn't ride on an elephant. He rode on a donkey, didn't he? So you have these the kind of polarizing views, right? Of like, of course, Jesus is on my team. Jesus is in my camp. That's what we always believe. That's why, that's why people vote and they get really passionate about the fact that their view is the Christian view because this is the way Jesus would, would have been. There's a problem with that whole idea. Jesus never came to be political. And he made it absolutely clear in the scriptures that he did not come to be a political authority or a political ruler. He came to establish the kingdom of God which is above any earthly kingdom or any political system that we have. 
In fact, as I mentioned, let's look at some of the passages of Scripture. Jesus, in his day, we do the same thing to him today that they did 2,000 years ago when he was walking the planet. People tried to make him a political figure. They wanted to put him on their team so they would be on the winning side. So listen to Luke chapter 22, verses 24 to 27. These are Jesus' closest followers. We know them as the disciples of the apostles. And they're very close to Jesus. And right away, they're in this battle for political leverage. So what happens? It says in verse 24, dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Isn't that what politics are all about? And he said to them in verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors. In verse 26, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? It is not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves. So because you have to capture what's, what's Jesus, his early followers, his, his disciples, you know what they're doing? They're seeing him as a political figure who's going to take over the world and overthrow the Romans. And they're thinking, all right, when he gets into power, who's going to be on the right and who's going to be on the left? Who's going to be the greatest? And then Jesus comes along and he does this. So you guys have it all backwards. You think it's about climbing the ladder and being, having the most power and authority. It's actually relinquishing power and serving that actually makes you the greatest in the kingdom of God, not a political system. So right away, Jesus is already turning the tables on his disciples early on and say, hey, listen, you guys are missing it. It's not about an earthly kingdom. It's not about an earthly power. In fact, we know that this is true, that Jesus was, that people wanted Jesus to be a political figure because this is one of the things I've always struggled with as, as growing up in church and then even more so as a pastor. You know, we celebrate Palm Sunday, which is the week before Easter. And Palm Sunday is a very interesting Sunday to celebrate. Now, historically, especially in the Catholic Church, it's a very big event. And sometimes, we'll, you know, we'll do the, you do the thing where you got, the, you know, like they did 2,000 years ago, where they lay down the palm branches, and it's a celebration. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. We call it the triumphal entry. But there's a problem with the way that we view it, because if, you, if we were to look at what was going on in the context, there, the, there's this huge uproar in Jerusalem as Jesus comes in on a donkey. And as he comes in, they're yelling the word Hosanna, which is Hebrew for save. So they're like, this guy's our savior. This guy's our savior. But there's a problem because underneath the surface, they, didn't work, they weren't calling for Jesus to be the savior of the world. They thought he was going to be the savior of the Jews. He was going to be the one that would overthrow the Romans. And so when he comes into town, they're like, oh, finally, finally, this oppressive, overbearing, controlling, corrupt thing called the Roman Empire is now going to fall. Why? Because Jesus is here. Let me tell you, what does it say about the city when Jesus came in in Matthew 21, verse 10? It says, when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? This is the one we've been waiting for. But here's the problem. If you read through the continued through what we call the Passion Week, Slowly but surely, Jesus disappoints everybody because he's not meeting their expectations. And we know that's true because when you get to the end of the week, just before he goes to the cross, listen to what's recorded in Mark chapter 14, verse 50. It says, and they all left him and fled. Why? Because he wasn't there to overthrow the Roman government. He was there to sacrifice himself for the sins of the world. And people didn't want that. They wanted what? A political leader. And we know this is so embedded in, in their mindset that even after Jesus' death and his resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days with his early followers talking about one subject, the kingdom of God. 
over and over and over again. And then we get to Acts chapter one, verse six. Remember, we were in the resurgence series. And the first thing that comes out of their mouth is what? They say this. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? There it is again. It's an earthly kingdom. They're like, and, and Jesus is like, you could tell. I'm sure he had to be frustrated. Like, really, after all this, you're still stuck on this earthly kingdom. It's always about the kingdom of God, not a country or a nation or an empire. It's never about that with Jesus because Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. There isn't any competition, so there isn't any need for him to take on any political role. I want you to listen to a dialogue that Jesus had with Pilate just before he went to his death. Here is the primary political figure in the, in the narrative that leads to Jesus' death on the cross. And listen to the tension and listen to what Pilate sees, but listen to Jesus' response to him. It says in verse 33 of John 18, it says, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this or on your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting and that I would not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the, wor the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear, the, bear witness to the truth. This is so powerful. This is so powerful, and there's, there's something we'll talk more about when we get into this series called The Gospel Shapes About Politics, because one of the things that, that is embedded in this is that back in the Old Testament, that God was originally supposed to be the Lord and the King over his people. It's always been that way. But the Jews made a decision. When, when they got into the promised land and they got all of the things they thought they were supposed to, to have, they looked around at the nations around them and they thought, we're missing something. We don't have a king. And so through, they go to Samuel, who's the prophet at the time, and they say, hey, you know what? We want to be like everybody else. We want to have a king. And God, because of the hardness of their heart, grants them a king. Anybody read the Old Testament lately? Kings didn't work out so well. Most of them were corrupt. Some of them were okay. Some of them had really good things, and some had really bad things. Some of them had both. It did not work out well. Why? Because God never set up humanity, especially his people, to be ruled by human beings. He set us up to what? To be under his authority in our life. And that's why this whole political gospel, we put our faith in a human being that cannot ever meet the expectations of what we need. It can only be in Jesus himself. That's why I don't sweat who's in the White House because I know who's on the throne. And that's why sometimes we get all, oh, I can't believe it, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. No, it's not. Jesus conquered sin and death. No person in the White House has ever done that or will ever do that. No person on any throne on, in the earth. And that's why when we make everything about shaping a reality of the gospel that's based on a political persuasion, we sell ourselves short. We worship an earthly king that will always let us down. But if we trust in Jesus, then it doesn't necessarily matter. We don't live and die by political op opinion or, or election or who's in the White House. Why? Because Jesus is the one who has ultimate authority. That's why Paul said, someday every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, what? That Jesus Christ is Lord. 
So that means that you and I ha don't sell ourselves short and buy into a political system or political gospel. Second one, are you ready to move on? You're like, please move on from politics. I'm uncomfortable, right? Second version of the gospel that we buy into that sells us short of what it really is is the affluent gospel. And the affluent gospel believes this. God wants me to be rich. God's primary way of blessing me is always through wealth. That's how I know I'm good. That's how I know God is good because he blesses me with wealth. This is a mentality that many of us buy into. And that is shaped by this reality. I, I'm always focused on money, making money, saving money, trying to spend money, serving money. That's my life. And many of us would never want to admit that, but if we would look at our lives, that's the truth. We've bought into a, an affluent reality that the more money I have, the more I feel justified and the more I feel like God is good. And somehow poverty becomes something horrific that only is for people who don't know how to handle their money or don't follow Jesus. It doesn't fly in other parts of the world, by the way. But I want you to understand as we, we're going to read through a couple of passages here, this is really important. Every time we talk about affluence or wealth or being rich, probably 90% of us, maybe 95% of us in the room say, that's not me. We think of somebody else. We think of Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or whoever has a billions of dollars. Oh, they're rich. So Jesus is talking to them. No, 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 no. That's us. Did you know that people who even are living at the poverty line in the United States are considered wealthy in most parts of the world? So wherever you are on the economic spectrum in the United States, you are considered wealthy compared to the rest of the world. So when the Bible ad addresses wealth, guess who it's talking to? All of us. It's all of us. So let me read you two stories. Two different rich people, which is us, that Jesus had an encounter with, and the outcome is the exact opposite of each other. Because one of the things that's true is when the gospel drops and it starts to penetrate your soul, it will always influence the way you view money. Always. That's one of the signs we'll talk about when we get, we'll talk about money in the Gospel Shape series, and we'll talk about, it's interesting that there's many times in the Gospels that we read past and we don't read and really understand that so much of the outflow of what you see that someone who's been transformed by Jesus starts living differently with money. It's part of what happens. So let me, let me read a story. Mark chapter 10, verses 20 through 31 there's a story about a man that we, we don't even know his name. We just call him the rich young ruler. That's all we, we know. And we know he was young. He has, had wealth and some authority. So we just give him that name. And he comes to Jesus in a conversation. And he's looking to ask the question, how do I gain eternal life? And kind of self-justification. So then Jesus says, you keep the law? And this is his response. It says, and he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept for my youth. So he has, he has, his moral character is impeccable. It says, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around, and he said to his disciples, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but with God, not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers 
and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So just, if you've read that story before, just let that settle in for a moment. What's going on there? So Jesus is encountering a man who has great wealth. And he identifies right away from whatever Jesus picks up that it isn't, which by the way, it's not a sin to be wealthy. It is a sin to let your wealth be your idol. And that, hear me though, because sometimes I've talked to a lot of people like, oh, sin's not my, or money's not my idol. Well, are you sure? <laughs> so Jesus asks him something very important, but I want you to catch what's going on here. He asks him to sell his possessions and give his money to the poor. Why is Jesus asking that? I'll tell you why. Because he's saying there's an idol in your life that is preventing from you from fully embracing me and understanding the gospel. And the reason we know that is because after he says that, he says this. He says, then come follow me. He knew that if the man had his wealth, he could not follow Jesus. And that's why the man, what? It says he was disheartened and he went away sorrowful. Why? Because he looked at his money and he looked at Jesus and what did he do? He chose his money. He chose his money. And you don't have to have a million dollars or a billion dollars to be in the same situation. You could have 50 bucks in your bank account right now and you're still consumed by money. You're consumed with the lack of it, but you're still consumed. So you become focused on making money and trying to make ends meet and trying to be focused on that, which I know, I understand the reality. You have to make a living. I get that. But it becomes all consuming so that when Jesus comes into your life as a one who provides or one who calls you to something greater, you say, oh, I can't do it because I have to work. I have to make a living. I have to do all that. But Jesus says, has your money become your God? Because so many of us, Jesus calls us to follow him and money's become our, we're consumed with it. It controls us. Now there's the flip side. The flip side is a guy that I've sensed this before, but when we get to heaven, I'm going to go find this guy named Zacchaeus, and I'm going to apologize for, for, apologize for thousands of years of bad history that gave this guy one, one characteristic that we all, we all point to. He was short. Can you imagine what I'm going to read in a moment, and all people can remember about you is that you were a short guy. There's so much more to his story than his stature. Listen, Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 8. Here's another wealthy guy who encounters Jesus. But what happens here? It says, he entered Jericho, talking of Jesus, and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. There it is. So he ran on ahead, and he climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. For he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry, come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he heard and he came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, as the religious leaders, they were all grumbled. He has gone to be with the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold completely different response. So what's going on? So Zacchaeus had some kind of deep passion in him that he wanted to know who Jesus was. The rich young ruler came with an, an angle of self-justification to some kind, kind of like, I want my wealth, but I want to add on good character and eternal life too. Zacchaeus is so desperate, he's, he can't see Jesus, so he climbs a tree. And then for Jesus, who's known as a rabbi, to see Zacchaeus and say, hey, I'm coming to your house today, that's a profound statement. 
For a rabbi to choose somebody was huge. That's why when Jesus called his original disciples, it was profound for Jesus to say, come follow me. So Zacchaeus embraces him. And listen, here's the thing we don't know. We don't know what conversation went on between Jesus and Zacchaeus. But we see the outcome. We see the outcome, which is this. Zacchaeus looks at his money and he looks at Jesus and he says, I'll choose Jesus. You have to understand this man under the cover of the Roman government had the ability to defraud his own people. It was legalized extortion and he could extort as much money as he wanted to. As long as the Roman government got what they wanted, Zacchaeus could take what he wanted. So he was rich. He had it in. He had it made. And yet all of the things that he had could not compare to this man who he encountered and and he surrenders everything. And we know that Jesus did not prescribe to Zacchaeus what to do. And the reason we know that is because he says, I'm going to sell possession, give half what I have to the poor. But the second thing when he says, and if I've defrauded anybody, I'll give them fourfold. The law only required you to give two times as much back as what you had stolen from somebody, not four times. Jesus wouldn't have told him that. He would have probably said to Zacchaeus, do what the law tells you to do. But Zacchaeus' response is, I'll go twice what the law says to do. Why? Because I don't want to be bound by money anymore. I want Jesus. So there's bad news, and there's good news. See, the gospel dropped in Zacchaeus, but it never penetrated the rich young ruler. Here's the good news. What's impossible with man is possible with God. That means God can save a rich person who's willing to give up the idol of wealth to embrace the full gospel in our lives. So that's the second reality, a reversion of the gospel. Ready to go on? Good, because the two, the rest of them aren't, aren't any easier. So number three, our version of the gospel also comes out, our inoculated gospel is the cultural gospel. And that believes this. My culture, which is my ethnicity, my way of life, my color, uh, my skin color, my country, uh, is superior to other cultures. Therefore, I protect my own culture or feel pity and look down on other cultures. Now, this is one that is very subtle because we don't think that we have this. We think that we're, we're blind to color or ethnicity. We're like... America is this beautiful melting pot, and we're not. We're divided. We're separated. We're isolated from each other. And many times it finds its way into the church. And there's a mentality that is behind this that we have to get at, and that is that there is no one culture on the planet that is superior to another culture, according to the kingdom of God. But we set it up that way. We look down so many times on other nations for various reasons. And there is... There are different differences between our nation and other nations. I get that. But here's the challenge. We think that if people live the way we live, they would always be better off. Not so. Not so. And the reason I know that's true is because if you have that mentality, you need to find way, your way into relationship with somebody who comes from another country that you would perceive less than ours and listen to their story. And that's not true for every country. There are civil wars and there, there is corruption and poverty that needs to be addressed. But I'll tell you, many times when we think that we are bringing to people salvation through wealth or alleviation of their poverty, which is good, but there's a challenge if we think that's going to cause all their problems to go away. The reason I have this perspective is because I have a, a very good friend of mine who grew up in Uganda. And, and his perspective on what was going on in Uganda from his side is very different than what was going on in the rest of the world. So when we think of Africa, we think of corruption, we think of poverty, we think of civil war, we think of child soldiers, we think of all of these bad things, and those things are true. But we don't realize that the gospel is just as powerful in Africa as it is in the United States. 
But when we think that there's this imbalance, that somehow, boy, they really need our help. You know what that's called? It's called colonialism. That means we go and we set up our brand of life and Christianity not realizing that God is already doing something indigenously amongst the people. And I remember Michael, his name is Michael Badraki, he would tell me about that, that people would come and they would do things, but not, they wouldn't make the impact that they would think. But they'd take the video and they'd go home and they'd say, hey, look what we did. We brought Jesus to Uganda. Newsflash, he was already there. That's why when we go to Haiti, we don't say, bringing Jesus to Haiti, because he's already there. He's already working. And so it's the shift for us that we have to realize that, that God is at work in people. Therefore, there's an equality that we have to have. So why is this so important? Because God went to great lengths. We just went through the book of Acts to try to help people to see Jesus didn't die for a certain ethnic group. Jesus didn't come just for the Jews. Jesus came for everybody. And his death is for everybody. And his life is for everybody. In fact, his early followers didn't get this one. And so God came, comes to Peter in a vision in Acts chapter 10. And shows him all the things that Peter saw in his dietary restrictions in the law that were considered unclean are now considered what? Clean. Because God was using it as an analogy of people. There are no people who are unclean and clean. There are just people. So when Peter gets confronted with this vision that God gives to him, Acts chapter 10, verse 34 and 35, it says this, Then Peter began to speak. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Every nation. And then Peter goes to a guy's house named Cornelius, who is a Gentile, and Peter goes into the house, which is total taboo for a Jew, and he tells them of the gospel. And while he's still preaching, this is what happens. It says in Acts 10, 45, uh, 44 to 45, it says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on those who heard the message, and the circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. This is earth shattering. Why? Because they were stuck. It was the Jews and then what? Gentiles and then Samaritans. When God says, no, this is how I see people. This is how I value people. And we're in the situation we're in right now. We're in the world today and God is, is, is allowing the world to unfold the way it is right now. And Jesus hasn't returned yet. Why? For one reason. Because God loves people. Listen to what Peter wrote in 2 Peter 3, verse 9. It says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So Jesus is waiting and waiting and waiting. Why? Because the, the, Jesus actually said in Matthew, he said that the gospel will be preached to all nations. And then the end comes. Guess what hasn't happened yet? The gospel hasn't reached every tongue, tribe, and nation. It hasn't reached all people groups. There are groups of people around the world that don't have the gospel in their language. They don't have the Bible in their language. They don't even know who Jesus is. And so God is what? Patiently waiting for the church globally to reach the world. But we have to overcome some things that we are dealing with, which is that means that Jesus loves and cares for and is waiting for us to reach people who are different than us, people that we hate, people that we don't understand, people that come from different backgrounds. God is waiting for us to come to a place where we actually embrace them. Why? Because this, listen to what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 to 28. Listen to God's perspective on people. It says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew 
nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for, all, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. All the what? The dividing things that we put in, God says, none. People are people. And God loves people. Now, why, why is this so important? Because the finish line looks different than you might think it does. So we just mentioned earlier that Jesus said that what is impossible with man is possible with God. He's in the context what, that God can even save a rich man. God can deliver the rich man from his wealth so he can experience salvation. I have this, this assumption that I think is probably reality. That God has the ability to save a racist. God does. But if, if they still carry some of that with them into the kingdom of God, they are going to be so disappointed when they get to heaven. They are. Because they're going to walk into a place where the diversity is going to blow them away. Listen to what the throne room looks like. This, listen to what heaven looks like. This is John's vision in Revelation chapter 7. God gave him this vision. This is what it looks like in heaven. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Every tongue, tribe, and nation. That means we're going to walk into the presence of God and there's going to be people who don't look like us and they probably don't speak our language and we're all going to be worshiping the same Jesus. That's going to be rough if you think that some people are superior to others. And you walk in and the room's full of a bunch of people who you didn't like in this life and now you're stuck with them forever. That's the finish line. If that's the finish line, then shouldn't we start working on that now? The answer is yes, because listen to what Jesus, when he taught us how to pray, what did he say? Matthew 6, 10. He says, this is the way we pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If heaven is a place of diversity, then what is the church supposed to be? It's a place of diversity. That means our lives should be filled with people that are different than us. We need it. Here's your homework. If you struggle with a cultural gospel, find somebody that you don't like or don't understand is from a different ethnicity or a different background and, and get to know them and listen to their story. Listen to where they've come from. Listen to what they've gone through. You're going to find something, a couple of interesting things. You're going to find one of the things that you'll be surprised by is how many things you have in common with that person. The other thing you're going to be surprised by is you're going to realize that you can't, you can't judge a book by its cover. There's more than meets the eye with everybody. And that's why I love to hear people's stories. I love to hear their background. I love to know why. Because it's different than mine and it's the same as mine. But it gives me perspective to understand the way God works. God works through all kinds of different people in different languages. And when we're just stuck in one culture, we don't see how vast God is. Somebody said this one time, and I will never forget it. Talking about the world. When, when, when the gospel penetrates a nation and they get the scriptures, you know what? They have in their Bible the same as we have in our Bible. Acts 1.8, you'll receive power, what? To be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea. You get that? Remember, you guys, we went through that in Acts. Remember that? They have that in their Bible, too. What does that mean? That means that they start sending missionaries to the United States. Did you know that the United States is becoming one of the, the, the largest receiving countries in the world for missionaries? It used to be reversed. It's now, they're coming here. Why? Because more and more we need Jesus, and we don't even know it. 
And because the world's coming to the United States, missionaries from those parts of the world are coming to the United States to reach people. It's, it's incredible. Why? Because they have the same Bible that we have and that God loves all people equally. And then here's the final version of the gospel, the final inoculated version of the gospel that we have. And this, this one's really personal for me. If you want to know what I struggle with, here it is, the convenient gospel. And this gospel believes that God won't want me to be uncomfortable. God wants me to be happy. That's the primary purpose of God in my life, is to make me happy, to make all of my wildest dreams come true. No, that's a genie. That's not God. But we think that it's God. That means that anything that requires me to experience pain or inconvenience or discomfort cannot possibly be from God. Because God wants me to be happy. God wants me to be comfortable. But what happens when we buy into that gospel, when that, that's on the surface of our lives and it's all about convenience, then one of the things that becomes true for all of us is that we, we start to pull back from those places where God is pushing in and calling us to follow him more. And that's the whole part of inoculation that's true for us. And that is, what is when you're inoculated and a disease shows up, what does your body do? It resists it. And when the gospel shows up and we're inoculated to it, what do we do? We resist it. How do we resist it? Well, one of the things I think that Jesus knew that would be true of his people for centuries and centuries and centuries is that we come up with all the excuses of why we can't do what God's calling us to do. We push back on it and we find out all these reasons why I can't possibly, and we come up with great reasons of why we can't possibly do what God's calling us to do. We can't go follow Jesus in that area. Why? Because of this or that or this. In fact, Jesus actually told a story or a parable about these kind of excuses. And it's this is Luke chapter 14, verse 16 to 20. Verse 16, it says, But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who have been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought uh, five yoke of oxen, and I, I have to go and examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. Those are legit, aren't they? possessions, job, family. Come on. I mean, Jesus, that's like an airtight case. You can't get around that one, right? Let's just be honest for a moment. I'm going to be really honest with you. Anybody ever make up an excuse and you know deep down inside it's just a flat-out lie? Yeah, we do it all the time. And somehow we are self-deceived into thinking people believe our lies. We keep telling the lies to ourselves of why we can't do what we're going to do and because we have to push back on what Jesus is asking to do. And they're just excuses. And they're really legitimate ones. I can't. I have to work. Yeah, you do. But what if Jesus is asking you to change careers? I can't because my family, I, I got to be a good husband. I got to be a good wife. I got to be a good mom. I have to be a good dad. Isn't it interesting that Jesus pushed back on people and said that you're going to have, some of you are going to have to leave your family? Which, by the way, I've seen in my experience so many times when we use family as an excuse of why we don't follow Jesus, usually our family's a mess. Because if we're not following Jesus, guess what our family's not doing? They're not following Jesus either. So we have to think about, are these excuses or are they actually legitimate? I don't think there is a legitimate reason to ever say no to Jesus. And you know whether Jesus is pushing in or not. And that's why it's so... So many times that, that people, when you, when you push in, they're like, oh, no, I have this, and that's great, but eventually you're going to have to be honest with yourself. 
Because when you stand before Jesus someday, there will be no excuse. And this is so, it's so important for us to come to the realization we have to be honest about why we're pushing back and get beyond the excuses. Here's the, here's the challenge, and this is one of the things that we get so confused by. We live under grace. Our salvation is a free gift, but here's the reality. It's a free gift that will cost you everything. It is. Read the Bible. Jesus offers salvation freely. He forgives sin through his death on the cross. But when you say yes, you now own it. I've said this before, but if someone came to you and offered you a brand new car, you're like for free and they're like, you're like, yes, I'll take it. But they hand you the keys and they hand you the registration. Now what? You have to put gas in it. You have to maintain it. You have to clean it, right? All of that. You now, it's a free gift, but what are you now? You're responsible. The same thing's true with our salvation. It's going to cost you everything to follow Jesus. That's why there was so much pain and struggle in the book of Acts, because it cost them everything. But here's the secret that we forget about the cost of following Jesus. Listen to Jesus' words in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 26. He says, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whatever is, whoever is ashamed of me uh, and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of his holy angels. What is Jesus saying? God created you and I to live a certain life that most of us never, ever get to. He created us to live a life that wasn't bound by sin. That's how he created us. But we get stuck in sin, and then we want Jesus to come and do something because we know we're desperate, but we're not desperate enough to sell out and give everything. I love what we just saying. I'm in, I'm yours. Your love's too good to leave me, right? Am I in, am I yours, or am I still kind of mine? See, what happens is Jesus says the only way that you live is if you die. If you fully die to yourself, that's why he said what? Take up your cross daily. Why? Because when the flesh dies one day, it wants to resurrect itself the next day. Don't we all know that's true? The thing that you thought you overcame yesterday comes back and kicks you in the butt the next day, right? That's why every day we die to ourselves. Why? So that the more we die to ourselves, the more we live for Jesus the more we live, actually experience. And there's a capacity of life that we haven't gotten to yet. Why? Because we've allowed ourselves to be inoculated to the gospel to the point where we haven't let it sink into our soul and sold out for Jesus. And it's not to work harder or make it more difficult. It's because there's a capacity of life that Jesus died for that he's waiting for us to realize. But it comes through a path that you and I don't want to take. It comes to dying to ourselves, dying to our agenda and dying to our comfort and our convenience. We live in one of the most comfortable, convenient cities in Southern California. Simi Valley was built on the concept of comfort and convenience. Close to places, but I don't want to live in LA, so I'm going to move to Simi Valley, right? It used to be, I don't want to live in LA, so I moved to the San Fernando Valley. Now it's like, I don't want to live in the valley, so I moved to Simi Valley, right? We're based on that. And it's interesting, our city struggles to have an identity. You know why? Because we don't really care about community. We care about comfort and convenience. It's true. I've seen the struggle. We don't have an identity as a city because most of us are commuters or we're here because I want to live where there's less crime or there's less people 
And so we find ourselves here. And then when the gospel confronts that, our whole basis of why we live where we live is now confronted. I know this is true in my life. So when we think about that, there's a capacity of life that God has for us, and it comes through what? Dying to myself every day to let God live in my life. So what is it God is calling you to die to yourself in? So one of the challenges that I know I'm trying to do more and more about when I preach is that I, I, I'm preaching to myself probably as much, if not more, than you. So sometimes you're just getting let in on my own personal process. So when I go through the message each week and I'm preparing, I'm like, okay, Lord, where, where are you preaching to me? Where is your spirit speaking to me? And this, the fourth one here that we're going, this is me. This is my life. This is the struggle I have. That I'm surrounded in convenience and it's endorsed and encouraged and this is the way the life we have to live, right? So Kim and I were sitting down on, on Friday. Just we tend to do, we have a little, usually a little time on our Sabbath where we kind of process where we're at, where's our life, and we can actually talk about stuff. And so we were talking about this thing, comfort, convenience. And most of you know that we've been foster, uh, foster family for about the past five or six years. And now we're in a stretch right now where we have about six to eight months where we haven't had a child in our house. And I'm just going to be honest. I've been very grateful for that reality because I'm very busy right now and school has kind of taken over my life and then church and all these things. And so uh, when the phone rings, I'm like, mm, is it the county? Because <laughs> I know what that call could mean. That means my entire life changes overnight. And so we hadn't gotten a call for a while and I think it was like three or four weeks ago, Kim's like, I'm going to call the county. I'm like, are you sure? She goes, yeah. So she calls and says, hey, you know, and so there's some stuff going on in the county with where things are. And we usually get babies out of the hospital. and They're trying to keep them with, with biological families, at least of like grandparents and things like that. So, so there's kind of this lull right now. And so, so we're like three or four weeks ago, and then we're sitting on the couch, and I'm thinking, this is what I'm thinking. I'm like, wow, we keep dodging a bullet. The county's not calling. And then Kim says to me, I called again. I'm like, ah. Oh. Because this is, I'll tell you, this is what's going through. I know the moment we get the call, most likely it'll be a baby coming out of the hospital with multiple challenges, multiple difficulties. And that means I'm not going to sleep for two months. I know it. Because anybody had babies? They don't sleep real well when they're first born, right? <laughs> you know, so we're like, yeah, when they're 15, they still don't sleep well, right? But I know what that's going to mean. But there's part of me, Kim and I were talking about this. And this is, now this is part of the selfish reason for fostering. It forces me out of my comfort zone. I know it's about the child and caring for the child, but I'm telling you, one of the things I've learned, even though it's hard, is it reminds me to stop being so selfish all the time. It does. When you're sitting up at two in the morning with a baby that is inconsolable and you've fed them and you've changed them and all you can do is hold them and you're tired and you know what full, the full schedule coming the next day, all you're left with is you can't be selfish anymore. Because this child doesn't know what's going on in your life. They don't know what your schedule is tomorrow. They just know they're desperate because they're dealing with issues that they didn't even cause and they don't even understand and they just need someone to be there. So we're going to get a call soon and yes, my world will be turned upside down but even though I'll be tired and maybe a little grouchy, I'll be sacrificing my flesh and my comfort every day for the sake of somebody else. Now, I'm not saying I'll put a little plug, by the way, fostering is a great thing. It's challenging, but it's a great thing. And most of you don't know that we are the East County site for foster care training every Thursday night. There are, I don't know how many people in the class right now, the county, we use, the county uses our building, and people are getting trained to care for kids all the time. What is it for you? 
What is it that you know that you've said no to? Because, man, if I say that, it's going to turn my world upside down. Guess what? You need your world turned upside down because that's the life that God wants you to live. All right? So this is what I'm going to ask us to do. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and to join me, and we're going to sing one last song together. But as we prepare to to sing the song, it's the song that we sang earlier, the song that talks about God's grace, but it also talks about the tension that we live in, how one moment we can choose to follow Jesus and the next moment we choose to walk away from him. But through those seasons and through those times, God's grace is always great enough and his love is always, always powerful enough that he will not allow us to stay where we're at. So I'm going to pray in a moment, and what I'm going to pray for is I'm going to ask that you do something that that may be difficult right now, but I'm going to ask us to ask God for forgiveness. For forgiveness in buying into a gospel that has sold the gospel short of what it should be in our life. I don't know if you are hit by all four or if you're hit by one. Is it political? Is it affluent? Is it cultural? Is it convenient? What is it? But Jesus is confronting you today and saying it's time for you to repent from what you've bought into and now you've, you've, you've settled for less than what I created you to live for. It is beyond yourself. So let's pray and let's prepare our hearts. And then when we sing, we're going to sing triumphantly about the fact that God's love will not let us stay stuck in an inoculated form of the gospel, but he wants it to drop into our soul.